Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by the TCT content team. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode in our Innovators on Innovators series. Today, Ben Johnson, the VP Portfolio and Regulatory Healthcare at 3D Systems, is joined by Laura Gilmore, a Principal Consultant for AM and Regulatory Strategies for the Veterans Health Administration. They discuss what attracted them to 3D printing in the medical space, where additive manufacturing does and doesn't make sense in healthcare, and the challenges they will both be looking to address in their respective roles moving forward. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can get your free print subscription to TCT Magazine and get the biggest 3D printing news stories delivered straight to your inbox every week with our additive insight newsletter. Hey Laura, it's nice to be on this podcast with you. Yeah, Ben, likewise. Uh, and thinking back in our history, I think we first met in 2015. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I was visiting your facility in Golden. It was pretty new at the time, I think, right? And actually, at that time, you were, you were visiting our old facility uh, in Golden. Um, and I remember you coming in as uh, as a as a group that was focused on um, some implants that you wanted to make uh, through our group. And we were in a, the older facility and we had a smaller boardroom uh, that we tried to cram everyone into. And um, it was quite the interesting meeting as, uh, uh, and a little bit intimidating for me. Don't know if you remember that or not. Had you first just started with 3D systems at that time? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I was pretty uh, um, new to my role at 3D systems and, and new to the role of, of welcoming a big contingent uh, that you brought with you and uh, <laughs> into the conversation around, um, around using additive for implants. And so it was uh, pretty eye-opening for me. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the, the folks, if I remember right, that I brought were are pretty, they're great, great people to work with but uh, can be hard on suppliers. <laughs> so. Yeah, but it was great. And it kind of um, was at a time where, where we were launching um, the capabilities and, and support to med device companies for making implants using uh, 3D printing technology. So it was a really exciting time. Um, but one thing we didn't get to talk about at that time was, was you know, kind of uh, your background, at least, that I'm interested in and, and how you got into uh, the medical device industry. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of a funny story. So, um, and I, I usually tell this to folks when I talk to um, young women and young men who are interested in engineering as a career. Um, so when I was in high school, you know, you, I don't know, maybe people still do this. We had um, an interest survey and you pop up from that uh, careers that might be good for your personality and interest type. And the first one was um, a park ranger, <laughs> which <laughs> although my extracurricular activities make that seem like a good idea, it didn't seem to be something I thought was, a, you know, you could live well doing necessarily. So um, the second one was biomedical engineer. And of course I didn't know what that was. So I had to look up, look it up and um, learned about how it's being used. Biomedical engineering was used in the medical device industry. Um, and then later at graduation, when I decided to, to pursue that and go to University of Pittsburgh to do biomedical engineering, a um, friend of my parents who, mentioned, well, Laura, it seems like you combined your parents' careers. 
so my mom is a nurse and my father was a mechanical engineer. So it, it seems like I did. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, um, kind of similar for, for me uh, in terms of influences. I had uh, my father who was an engineer uh, and then a, a chemistry teacher in high school uh, that I really enjoyed. Um, and that kind of propelled me into a, a chemical engineering route uh, at, the, at the University of Minnesota. Uh, but through that time, I realized that uh, for me, at least, what attracted me uh, to the industry was you know, the ability to work on products and, and uh, technologies that have an impact in the, in the healthcare system and have, at the end of the day, an impact into patients. And that's what really attracted me. Yeah. So how did you go from chemistry to additive manufacturing? Um, I, I spent a number of years in the med medical device industry um, and working on, on technologies that were uh, used to in the cardiovascular uh, segment of, of healthcare and uh, had been working on a project to uh, develop a transcatheter heart valve. Uh, so a heart valve that can be delivered uh, through the vasculature through a, um, a needle stick in the, in the leg. Um, and when you deploy these things into um, the body, you're typically deploying them into a very diseased um, patient. Um, and so an abnormal patient. But when you do testing of these devices uh, on the, you know, the bench top or in preclinical testing, um, you're use, usually using um, a you know, ideal environment uh, for the deployment of the heart valve. So you're using perfectly round concentric um, deployment and annular rings in order to test the valve. And that's not what really what happens um, in the clinic uh, and on these patients. And so I was looking for ways that I could create models of anatomy to deploy these devices into abnormal um, types of anatomy. And so ideally what I wanted to do was to take imaging data uh, from these patients uh, and create a three-dimensional model that I could put onto a pulse duplicator uh, and deploy these valves in, in irregular shapes to see how they function. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time I was working at a company um, here in Denver, Colorado to, to develop this product um, and had been seeking out some of the uh, service bureaus that do additive manufacturing. So I, I got my hands on some imaging data and then actually got my hands on some 3D representations of that data. Uh, and I was taking it to different groups to try to create essentially an anatomic model of, of these patients. Um, and that was my first introduction to additive manufacturing and, and what it can do. And um, from there, I was very interested in being able to prototype different types of heart valves, create more anatomic models. Um, and the service bureau I was working with at the time said, oh, you need to go check out this company called Medical Modeling. They do this exact type of thing that you're looking to do. Uh, and it just so happened they kind of um, were in my backyard in Golden, Colorado. And so I, I went to check them out and, and kind of kept an eye on them for a while. Um, and then the opportunity uh, came up to, to join that group. And, um, uh, you know, thankfully I was um, accepted into, into the group and, and started really diving into what additive manufacturing can do and, and how it's applied in healthcare. So, um, yeah, my route came in through the med device industry and, and, and how additive can be used to help with uh, device development. I understand your pathway um, was a little bit different. 
Yeah, it, it was. Um, and it's interesting you mention the term rapid prototyping because at the time when I was introduced to additive manufacturing, that was the term that was often used, but there were uh, what seemed like 20 different terms that were used to describe the field. And in fact, when we were talking about uh, and joke about it, it, we would say that the field had an identity crisis because they couldn't pick a, a term to use to describe it. So, um, but at that time, I, I was looking into the metal technologies rather than the polymer side of things. And um, I was working for an orthopedic company making large joints at the time. And um, everyone was looking to compete with uh, Zimmer Biomets, or I guess it was Zimmer then, now it's Zimmer Biomet, um, but Zimmer's trabecular metal porous surface. And so um, we were looking to find a, a way to um, enhance the porous coatings on devices. And so the product that I was working on then is now, has been launched for several years. Um, but figuring out how to do porous coatings on, uh, with the additive manufacturing technology um, and in the metal space was pretty new idea at the time. So um, I was definitely introduced to what felt like very cutting edge at that time as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's so curious then when you uh, are thinking about a new technology at a you know large orthopedic company, what kind of um, challenges did you encounter in terms of how do you test um, products uh, from this type of technology and how do you think about setting up manufacturing cells that can make product? Um, I imagine that was a lot, a lot of your conversations too, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, there definitely were some different considerations. So, I mean, to dive into the weeds a tiny bit, the the porous coating um, has like guidance of what what you need to test from the FDA and, and what's required. Um, and of course, you have predicate devices that have some sort of porous coating on them. So, we compared to to what was already done in the past, which is pretty common in the medical device field. You compare to what's called a predicate, as you know, um, and. So we looked at, at that, but there were some areas where, you know, the, the testing standards that were out there didn't really apply. So um, for the porous structures, you're building the um, solid material at the same time that you're building the porous material, which makes it really nice for design. You can create um, different different types of design that, you know, line of sight, you, you wouldn't need to take that into account, for example. And so um, there's not really necessarily an interface between the coating and the, and the um, solid material. So you just have different considerations to think about in terms of how you're testing and making sure that it's uh, behaving the way uh, that you're expecting it to in the body over long-term, especially if you have a, um, a, a device that has fatigue needs or something like that since you're putting it into the body and expecting it to last uh, in a person for 30 or more years. You really wanna make sure to do all that kind of testing, but it's the same basic concepts as what you've used in the past. So um, you're definitely comparing it to something you are used to seeing. So it makes it a little bit easier uh, to think through. And then after your, your work at the orthopedic company, um, you went to FDA, right? Yes, yeah. 
And I'm just curious if, if some of the work into um, the testing of, of these devices that were produced using additive technologies kind of propelled you into looking into standards and regulations and, and potentially an interest in FDA. Um, yeah, the, the FDA move was, uh, was a little bit unexpected in my career. Um, I needed, wanted to move closer to my family, which is in, um, the East coast. And it's funny because um, there are several pit grads who are also at the FDA. So they kind of piqued my interest into, well, you should consider this, um, this area. So, it was just an interesting time to come into the FDA because that was the time when some of the metal implants were coming through. And um, so I was one of the few people that, that knew about the technology and knew about kind of the, the differences uh, but, or, or even what it was. So I was part of um, the group, which ended up becoming the additive manufacturing working group there, which looked at, um, the new, the devices that were being made with additive manufacturing and kind of thinking through how do we create a um, common review process and make sure that the, the folks who are reviewing devices have um, common things to think about. And so standards are definitely part of, of what that would look like um, and guidance documents, which the FDA later came out with uh, a technical guidance document around using additive manufacturing for um, for the medical field. Yeah. Got it. So I have to ask then: it was was it in industry or was it with FDA? Where um, you know, as I talk to people in the uh, in the healthcare world who are leveraging additive manufacturing, there's typically a light bulb moment of, aha, I, I get how additive manufacturing can really impact healthcare uh, and patients. Was that light bulb moment for you um, in industry or, or was it at the FDA? Um, I think it was later on in industry in terms of like a real, really impactful full scope of what additive manufacturing can bring. Um, and, and you're probably familiar with the tracheal splint that, um, Dr. Hollister at University of Michigan designed. And the reason I think this one is really kind of one of my favorite stories and applications is because it combines a lot of the different areas people talk about a lot with additive manufacturing. It had a unique material, uh, patient-specific design, and it was made with a um, clinical need that had to happen pretty quickly for the, the infant um, to, to be able to survive and, and grow and, um, grow their own trachea in, in its, in the device's place. So that one I think was really impactful for me. Um, but what about you? Where, where do you see your light bulb moment? Yeah. Co coming into medical modeling, I, I really thought that, Hey, additives are really cool technology to help with device, you know, design and development, but really didn't think about it in terms of, you know, actually you can use this technology uh, in a production environment to impact patients' lives. And when I came into the, the company, you know, that was, that was front and center where um, the group was focused on creating surgical plans and patient-specific instrumentation uh, that surgeons would use in the clinic. Uh, so they would take the devices and sterilize them and bring them into the OR um, and, and conduct surgery 
uh, to translate what they wanted to do digitally uh, into the OR. And that was really the, the uh, oh, oh my goodness, this is, this is actually quite transformative to the world that I uh, had been in previously. Uh, and then as I spent more time with the group, uh, we ended up doing some really uh, high profile, impactful types of cases where uh, we were you know, conducting those surgical plans um, and providing the instrumentation that was used to say separate conjoined twins, which is a super rare disease uh, and takes a lot of coordination uh, across the surgical team. Uh, and then also takes a very precise plan uh, in order to do that successfully. Uh, and so we were working on cases to separate conjoined twins. We were working on cases to um, conduct full face transplants for, for um, you know, for, for uh, a couple of cases and um, those types of things um, and providing the, the tools to reconstruct uh, people's faces was, was quite impactful. And then the light bulb moment of, wow, you know, the, the, the ability to personalize the medicine to, and the treatment to the, the patient uh, is quite impactful and has all kinds of, you know, far reaching implications uh, in medicine. And so that, that's where it really hooked me um, mm -hmm. into the technology and how it can be applied um, in, in the healthcare sector um, and, and really kind of, you know, widen my vision on, on, um, uh, on these types of tools. And so that was, you know, you know, really what, what keeps me coming back to um, this type of technology is its impact that it can have. And, uh, and that, that's quite meaningful to me and, and um, you know, exactly what I was looking for in my career, at least. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it, it's interesting because, you know, we've worked for companies that are competitors in, in the additive technology space. But I, um, mm -hmm. I recently uh, listened to a podcast with um, where Brene Brown was interviewing Simon Sinek and they're, you know, both kind of in that um, uh, company culture um, leadership type uh, field. And Simon Sinek mentioned how, you know, even if you don't share a working history with someone, you can, um, you're, you're definitely have people that you're united in, in the values of trying to advance the greater good or in our case, the medical field. And so I think it's really interesting that, you know, we both kind of have the same um, overarching goals. So at the end of the day, we're, we're on the same team, even though in the past we've been competitors. So I thought that was a really interesting um, thing to hear in the preparation for this podcast. It was something I thought was kind of neat to, to share along today. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I um, actually, you know, since since our first meeting, uh, ha have enjoyed our interactions. Uh, I got to say, I was um, you know, not as happy uh, when you joined a competitor uh, to us, and then having to compete against you. Uh, that wasn't a great time. But I'm I'm uh, thoroughly um, uh, excited that that you've joined um, the the VA group and a, and a group that we work with a little bit too uh, to help propel um, this technology. Um, you know, that's a, that's a, it's nice to be on the same team again. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So it, and competition always makes you better. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs>
episode is sponsored by Evolve Additive. I spoke to Director of Business Development, James Grimm, about their unique STEP technology. STEP technology has just hit the commercial market and it is something completely different. So what it stands for is Selective Thermoplastic Electrophotographic Process. What this really is, is a uh, a three-step process. Think of like industrial, uh, high volume 2D printing. And so what we've done is adapted that existing technology that's really proven and reliable from a great manufacturer, Kodak. And so we leverage their 2D printing and we create toners out of polymers, right? So thermoplastics. And once we've tonerized the thermoplastics, we can then use that printing technology and image thermoplastics in a similar way that that they were imaging ink toners onto paper, right? Through a really high-tech 3D printing process, uh, we can align those plastic images on top of one another. They get fused together under heat and pressure, which is very similar to what's going on in an, in an injection molding machine. And so the net result is uh, very, very high resolution, very, very high detail, and a surface quality that is very similar to injection molding. And so what this allows us to do is really kind of poke into where injection molding currently has been uh, fulfilling manufacturing and with parts. And we, we are able to do this now with additive manufacturing and, and cut into what we kind of call our, our, our five pillars uh, of where our company stands on, right? And we want to deliver additive manufacturing that meets customers' needs for cost, a wide variety of materials, so real thermoplastic materials. We need to deliver parts that are of utmost quality. So it's very, you know, identical or better than injection molding quality and at a speed to meet high throughput. And we want it to be scalable, right? Our technology can grow and it's versatile, it really kind of breaks away from maybe a lot of the limitations of, of traditional injection molding. As we look towards AM for production, there's a lot of interest around the idea of the factory of the future. What's Evolve's take on how AM fits into that vision? The factory of the future is something that we really live and breathe every day at Evolve, right? Uh, automated unloading and loading of our parts is built right into the machine. So no, no more trying to create some sort of crazy robotic arm integration. It's pretty straightforward with ours. And so we've designed the machine to work in, in a factory setting right from the ground up. We've already built what we call Evolve factory software. And this allows you to really tap into all the data that is collected during the build process of our machine and leverage that for things like you know, ERP systems or MES systems and really sort of integrate this machine in an automated fashion into your own uh, production scheduling, ordering, fulfillment, it's really designed right from right out of the gate to be play very friendly with all of these fantastic automation tools and AI tools and big data tools that are coming our way. And another trend that we're really seeing right now is conversations around the role of additive manufacturing on supply chain. Where does Evolve fit into that conversation? Product producers are looking at how do they manufacture closer to the point of purchase. So you can start doing things like part rev control at a central headquarters and you know you can print 
parts at high volume and high mix at specific sites around the world. And so rather than calling up your contract manufacturer, having them pull a, pull a tool off of a shelf and prep it for molding, this is just send the data to your SVP machine that's sitting at your, at your manufacturing facility and pressing print. For more information, visit evolveadditive.com. Have you ever, um, in, in additive, you know, uh, typically is described as, you know, a, a hammer looking for a nail, uh, if you will. Have you come across any projects or initiatives where additive really just wasn't a, a great fit uh, and, and needed to be abandoned? I find those stories to be uh, quite interesting as well. Yeah, um, it's funny because when I was with EOS, I, we would talk a lot about, you know, if you have a product, a conventionally manufactured part that you make a ton of, and the conventional process works really well and is really cost-effective, maybe that's not a great use of resources to try and figure out how you can make it with using additive technology. And one thing that all often came up in the medical field was screws. Like, But for me, just why do you want to print a screw? Is there something different about um, the the screw that you want to you want to make a new type of feature or um, a new find a different way to secure something then then maybe additive would be an interesting idea but you can make a lot of screws with a turning machine and it's really cost effective and people do it all day every day and I don't I don't really see that as being a, a place and that, that's something people ask about a lot for some reason <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, seen that as well. We have, yeah. So you know, a lot of interest in uh, and also fabricating the screws, which is just a difficult challenge uh, for additive uh, right now. And like you said, there's no advantage, um, right. you know, to to printing uh, screws. Uh, another kind of uh, funny, um, you know, failure at least um, uh, to date uh, that I've come across a few times now because it keeps coming around uh, every every few years is the ability to take 3D. Uh, ultrasound of uh, infants in, ur in utero and creating physical 3D models from that, that ultrasound data um, has failed for a number of reasons, multiple times over, mostly because the imaging data isn't great. It leads a, needs a lot of massaging. Um, and then uh, at the end of the day, you have a, a nice uh, potentially, you know, model that you can put on your, on your mantle at home, uh, but it doesn't really serve a great medical purpose. Um, yeah. And so there's been a number of fits and starts around, you know, creating those types of, of models, which just hasn't really been a great use case for additive to date. Yeah, I, I did see, I don't know if you saw this though, um, a, like a blind woman being able to, like the model you're saying that you'd put on your mantle, whatever, that, mm -hmm. that she was able to kind of feel the the um, ultrasound, so to speak, because she obviously couldn't see it. I thought that was interesting, but it's not necessarily a medical use. It's more a, you know, helping with patient overall care, which is is interesting. Yeah, and that's an amazing story to, uh, you know, allow a, um, an expectant mother to, you know, essentially, you know, see um, their right. their child. Um, it just, and that it was top of mind for me as well as, as we've, um, again, had, had kind of those initiatives over the years and they really haven't gone anywhere uh, for yeah. us at least. Yeah, it seems like it's not a huge population or uh, like you were saying with the imaging 
might not be the best route. Yeah. yeah. So in, in the short term then, how, how do you think 3D printing will continue to make advances in healthcare? Um, so I think we'll continue obviously to see patient specific implants and instruments. And, and that I think, you know, obviously the best cases for that is in the hardest surgical cases. Um, so really complicated surgical cases, being able to visualize the anatomy, like, like the woman could visualize her, her baby. Um, I think it's a, a, obviously a different reason, but um, being able to see things differently is, is definitely helpful for the, um, you know, feeling and seeing the actual physical model, I think is really helpful for those hard surgical cases. And I don't see that going away. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there's, definitely some, you know, there could be some local reasons to, to do things more locally. Um, I, I think that that is a way additive manufacturing can help. Um, and also distributed, a distributed model of healthcare. I think it'd be interesting to look into how, um, you know, with, with the distributed model that's coming with, well, that we saw a bit with COVID, uh, where patients are being seen um, virtually, how can you then leverage that to use some sort of distributed um, healthcare model and, and leverage additive? How can additive manufacturing help with that too? I think those are all places that um, in the more short, short term you could see advances. Anything yeah, so else you think of? No, absolutely. Um, and I'd, I'd love to dive into the distributed model and, uh, and your you know, recent joining of the VA team uh, to create mm -hmm. uh, medical manufacturing capability uh, within the VA network. What are your goals for that? And what are your goals for, um, you know, how, how you're going to be able to support uh, the VA and in, in their initiative? So I think like the, the big overarching goal that I think has been, been shared um, pretty publicly is that they want um, the veterans to be able to go into any facility and be able to to have their clinical needs met through 3D printing, if that makes sense. Um, and so my role and goal for, for my time with the VA is to help them do that as safely and, and efficiently as possible. So, um, you know, they're working in a, in a way that, um, you know, where they're basically becoming a medical device manufacturer as well. So um, just helping them understand how, what, what the challenges might be um, and, and helping them spin up to that level. And I think uh, if, if you listen to some of the presentations that the FDA gives around point of care manufacturing, that's their main goal as well, to make sure that no matter where a patient gets a device or no matter where that device is made, I guess, not where they get it, but where it's made, um, that it's safe and effective. So I think that's, that's the goal is to make sure that anything that's being produced um, at point of care is safe and effective. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and actually quite fascinating to think about um, in the med device industry of how distributed manufacturing is going to impact uh, patient care um, down, down the road. And um, Certainly your, your support of the VA is, is quite impactful for helping making that happen. Um, I got to think that's pretty exciting. 
yeah, it's, it's really exciting. It's, it's really fun to, um, work with them every day. It's a wonderful team of people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great mission and it's, it's a great group to be working with and, and getting to work with a lot of different types of technologies as well has been, um, really interesting to me. How, how do you think the, and at least in the short term that the, the medical device industry changes, uh, as a result of the ability to, um, democratize the manufacturing of medical devices and the interest in hospital networks and creating their own manufacturing capabilities uh, to be more uh, independent um, in, in their operations. I get it, you know, the way I think about it at least is that it has some uh, potential for tremendous impact into the industry. Uh, and I suspect that you would probably feel the same way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the hospitals want to take it on because obviously there's a need that's not being met if they're willing to to take on such a, yeah. a big lift right and so um so i think there's there's a couple areas where um it really makes sense because you have the physicians right there interacting with the um the engineering technical team um you're you're really getting real time feedback on, on what you're designing. And, you know, if, if you think about the way medical device manufacturing is historically done, you have, um, and this isn't necessarily in every single device, but um, in orthopedics that I'm most familiar with, um, this is definitely done where you have uh, what's called a surgeon design team, surgeon experts um, and key opinion leaders, and they help the engineers understand the clinical practice and what's happening in, in the surgery and, and what the needs are, what's what's missing from the tools that the surgeons already have. So um, because you're doing that all together in the same place as the same team, you're not you know hiring surgeons to help you, um, then you're able to really quickly iterate on things and, and maybe even because you're down the down the hall from the OR, you can go to more surgeries and see more things because that's where you really mm. determine what are the the big needs. Um, so I think that's a big area that that makes a lot of sense um, for advancement yeah. because you're really getting involved right there. Yeah, that, yeah, that partnership between engineer and surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, is at a different level than I think you and I have been used to in the in industry, uh, where you're a little bit more at arm's length, and there's you know a, a financial relationship there as well. Um, right. But if you have you know engineers that are part of the same hospital system as the surgeon, that communication flows differently, uh, and mm -hmm. I've seen that quite a bit uh, across different hospital networks uh, as well. And and you know it, it's eye opening to me. Uh, on the types of information that flows back and forth between, you know, the technical team and the clinical team. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see so far. Mm -hmm. What what kind of uh, challenges have uh, do you foresee uh, for point of care device manufacturing that are um, hurdles that uh, we're going to work on solving over the next couple of years? Well, I think my favorite saying of all time is you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, the folks that are in their day-to-days to take care of um, patients and providing the best care for patients, they're not necessarily thinking about 
you know, a risk-based framework for developing devices, right? And so they, they have the skills to do it. It's not that, that they don't, they just don't know how to operationalize it and, you know, necessarily write it down in a way that, that we need it to be for uh, the medical device side of things. So I think that's something that um, I've seen as, as a, as a hurdle. And then maybe 3D systems isn't, isn't the best example of this, but there are other um, additive manufacturing technology makers who don't really understand what's happening at the hospital. Uh, and so the technology isn't necessarily, the hardware isn't necessarily the best suited for that environment so far, right? Yep. So, you know, there's issues with reliability and speed and you're, you're not a CT where you have uh, someone on site to do uh, any maintenance or if it breaks down. So those types of things I think are gonna be um, challenging in the next, in, in the future of point of care manufacturing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is true across the you know, entire additive industry uh, where the technology and, and the, I think a common misconception that, that we encounter is that you, know, you, you uh, press go on a print um, and then once the uh, machine is done making the part, there are additional steps that are needed in order to get a part into the clinic uh, mm-hmm. or into the OR. Uh, and those steps are not um, well understood by a lot of the folks who are trying to onboard the technology. And there's definitely um, an opportunity for the additive industry to step up uh, and provide the technologies that are uh, stable and reliable and to provide the, the workflows um, across the board to um, essentially create an easy button for the, for the clinical team. Because at the end of the day, the clinical team doesn't want to be uh, mired in, in um, the operation uh, or the maintenance and upkeep of the equipment that's used uh, to make these types of devices. Uh, so definitely an opportunity uh, for, the, um, for the additive industry there. Yeah, I agree. What, what role do you see regulators playing uh, in point of care manufacturing? Yeah, it's an interesting topic that I think has been uh, around for several years now and, and different people have different ideas of, of how this should go. Um, but I think that, you know, there, there is, it, I mean, to start for, for those that aren't familiar with the medical industry, you know, the FDA does have jurisdiction over medical devices and they're, they're a manufacturer of a medical device and there's definitions to that. Um, and then, you know, but they don't have any jurisdiction over what a physician does. So you could make a device for a certain um, use, and then a physician could decide, well, this would work in my practice for this patient based on my specialty knowledge. So um, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, how does that physician specialty knowledge and and practice of medicine play into using 3D printing in point of care. And I think the thing that that I I go back to that I I said earlier is, you know, the the, um, goal of the FDA is not to stifle innovation here or to, you know, not give patients the best care that their physician thinks that that they need. It's more Mm -hmm. to make sure that no matter where a device is made, 
that it has, uh, it's safe for that patient and they don't have to worry about it being different if it's made at point of care than it would if it was made at a, um, you know, at 3D systems factory, right? So um, that, that I think is the big question. And so I think that there's still um, some communication to work out in, in terms of what that looks like without limiting the way physicians and inter- engineers interact to be able to do those, the, the great things that are going to come, I think, with um, having point of care manufacturing. So there's definitely a, a role because I think we do want devices to be safe no matter where they're made. And a surgeon isn't an engineer, just like an engineer isn't a surgeon. So it is a team approach, but having, um, you know, things like quality system, either the exact way that it's being done at a medical device manufacturer or some way that um, makes sense based on risk. And I think that's still to be determined. Yeah, I think a common misconception is that uh, the role of say, uh, uh, regulatory agency like FDA is to say no <laughs> and stifle innovation, <laughs> like like you were saying, uh, yeah. and that's not really been my experience uh, or the experience of you know several folks in this this industry uh, where FDA has been you know quite the partner in trying to uh, develop the right methodology, the right standards, um, the right guidances on quality systems uh, and regulations. Uh, I've been. I've been uh, quite impressed with with the uh, FDA's approach in this case. Yeah, and and I think it has to be a partnership, doesn't it? Because again, you don't know what you don't know. The FDA isn't in the clinic. They don't understand necessarily that workflow. Um, So I think it's an education on both sides. Absolutely, yeah. Look, looking ahead then, you know, assuming that over the next couple of years, we can figure out some of those issues. uh, What most excites you about um, the ability to manufacture devices that are patient-specific in the clinic uh, and the potential for, for the future of that? So I think that it has the potential to um, push the, the practice of medicine a little bit and provide solutions to things that, that haven't been thought of yet. Um, so because you're of that partnership between the engineer and the um, physician, because you're really getting that feedback in real time. So um, I really think it's actually, you know, the technology is going to influence the the way the practice of medicine is done in some way, I think. So, um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think there are, you know, potential transformative capabilities um, that are on the horizon for us and the ability to not only make devices, which are done today, uh, but then to think about how you could um, improve upon um, the um, interventions for patients and and potentially make, you know, uh, living constructs um, that are, you know, specific to those patients uh, that help to restore function um, or, you know, the potential for making uh, pharmaceuticals that are matched to that specific patient's metabolic rate, ability to um, uh, leverage that medicine, and then the ability to combine uh, different therapies together uh, into one 
uh, either one pill or, or one type of medicine uh, to make things simpler for the patient uh, are all things that I see on the, on the horizon that are quite exciting and I think would probably be best deployed uh, in a distributed way like at the point of care. Yeah, it, it's already starting, isn't it? There's, yeah. there's been at least one 3D printed drug on the market and, and um, 3D Systems just made an acquisition in the bioprinting sphere, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, we uh, definitely have a vision of the ability to create uh, whole organs uh, for patients, uh, again, to restore function and to meet the need uh, of organ transplant shortages. Uh, mm-hmm. that, are, that we see in the market today. And again, I, I foresee that happening at the point of care because at some point you will need uh, information about the patient uh, and potentially cells or tissues from the patient in order to inform the uh, construct that you're trying to build. Yeah. So very exciting uh, to think yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, for very sure. Exciting. Uh, and like as, uh, as you had mentioned previously, it's uh, it's about the partnerships between the clinical teams, the engineers, um, and the and the vendors of the of the technologies to to make this happen. Uh, and I got to say, Laura, I, I could not be more thrilled uh, to be part of that partnership with you uh, as we as we launch these initiatives at the point of care in the future. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm excited too. 